Welcome to Real Marketers, where we hear from marketers who move fast, ask forgiveness, not permission, obsess about driving results, and are filled to the brim with crazy ideas and the guts to implement them. This is not a fireside chat, and there's absolutely no bullshit allowed here. And I'm your host, Stephanie Cox. I have more than 15 years of marketing experience, and I've pretty much done about everything in my career. I believe speed is better than perfection. I use the Oxford comma. I love Coca-Cola, have exceptionally high standards, and surround myself with people who get shit done. On this show, my guests and I will push boundaries and share the real truths about marketing and empower you to become a real marketer. I don't believe you have really lived as a marketer until you've done one of two things. And usually they come together. So bear with me for a second. One, you've been a marketing team army of one, where you're one person doing everything. And then two, you've marketed with absolutely no budget. And it's still been expected to drive results. That is marketing. That is what's so hard and so fun about marketing. And you know what? There are a lot of marketing armies of one out there. I think sometimes we forget that companies do operate with really small marketing teams and they still get a lot of shit done. And that's exactly what I'm talking about with today's guest. In this episode, we talked to Anna Schott, Director of Marketing at eSell Institute. She has nearly 10 years of marketing experience and is known for promoting a 3.7 million viewed TED Talk and book. We're talking about how she transitioned her company from list buying to creating an inbound machine, the pros and cons of being in a marketing army of one, determining when and what to outsource, and so much more. So first question, tell me something about yourself that few people know. (laughs) I like this. So thinking back to it, I grew up in a town, which is actually considered a village because there's less than a thousand people in the town. And my graduating class had 21 kids in it. I think only like six boys were in my class. So come Wait, from 21. Bigger, yeah, 21 kids. So our high school was not very big. That's that's for darn sure. So, but my family still, you know, a lot of my family still lives back home and I go visit quite a bit. So that is something not a lot of people know about me. That is crazy. I get, like, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. My high school graduating class was like less than 200 and I thought that was small. <laughs> Oh no. Yeah. That's, that's about, you know, the size of the high school and, and middle school combined maybe. Uh, but I mean, I always laugh, like we, we had no stoplights in the town. Uh, so it was, it was very quaint. You definitely knew everybody and that was everyone's business probably too, right? (laughs) Like I was just about to say that, you know, sometimes that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yes, everybody definitely knows everyone and their business. I, yeah, that, oh, I feel like that's like a, a show that should be on like the CW or whatever, free form or whatever it's called today, <laughs> right? Like some small town and anyways, um, we digress. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so one of the things that I'm really excited to talk to you about, because I think you've dealt with a situation that a lot of marketers are in and it's this whole idea of like, how do we get my, and I hate this word, but leads. Right. And I think there's this philosophy that is so archaic, but also is something that I feel like so many marketers still struggle with. And I get like probably six emails a day asking people, asking me if I'd like to buy a list, right? Cause <laughs> that's what you did back in the day, right? Wow. Like you used to buy a list and you'd send out all these emails. And I 
tell people when I started my career a, l- a long time ago, like email marketing wasn't a thing. Like there wasn't a platform to do it. Uh-huh. You like sent emails like 500 at a time in BCC and Outlook. Yeah. And that's how you did email marketing. So you've been able to transition the business that you're at from this idea of buying email lists to a more, you know, I would say 21st century demand gen inbound approach. What, like, how did that happen? Like, how do you get a company that's so used to buying lists and a culture that's, that's just what you do to think about that totally different when it has worked for them in the past? (laughs) Yeah. Change is hard. And uh, when I came into the company I'm at now, Excel Institute, you know, it was, it was mainly outbound sales and there was no marketing team. There was no marketing person and outbound was working. And that's a really hard time to come in and be like, okay, I know it's working, but we need to kind of shift some things, especially kind of an inbound marketing approach. And that's, that's kind of scary because like I said, the outbound emails and the calling and all of that, you know, got us to a certain point. But especially when I came on board, like inbound marketing was hot, like it was a huge trend. And so marketers knew what it knew what it was. And so I really kind of taught myself the ins and outs of it and just said, you know, like, let's just do an 80-20 approach. Like 80% of the time we're going to do outbound sales efforts and just give me a little bit of rope to kind of play with some things. And so that was kind of how I got kind of to that point of bringing in an inbound marketing approach, but it was slow. Uh, But you also have to bring people along for the ride. Uh, Just as much as I was educating myself, I tried to bring the team in just as much as well as like helping people understand, like, how do you like to buy? Like, Most of the time, we don't like outbound sales efforts. We don't like being blasted with an email uh, from an email or company that we don't know anything about, uh, nor do we like to be called from random numbers and we don't know these people. So to kind of put it in that framework of just like, hey, how do you like to buy? And if it doesn't match up with what we're doing as a company, then that gets people to say, "Uh uh-oh, like, what do we do moving forward? Now, I'm not saying that you should do away with all outbound efforts. Like, that is still very helpful. And it's very, it works a lot for a lot of companies. And we still do some of those outbound efforts. But it's definitely shifted kind of upside down where a lot of, a lot more leads are coming in from inbound marketing efforts than outbound. Well, and how do you think about convincing people, right? Like in this situation, like you mentioned, right? It's a process, but did you get a lot of pushback when you first started talking about it? Or, you know, did you rip the bandaid off? Like, what was that like when you had that conversation, like with your boss, like, Hey, like, we're not going to buy email lists anymore. <laughs> right. And like, yeah, it's, we're, it's- we're going to stop. <laughs> Well, and, you know, sometimes it's like that feeling, it just feels yucky sometimes to, you know, just completely blast emails and feel like you're, you're spam and to kind of come into it with a vulnerable place of like, this just feels kind of gross and it doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do, but also to come in with like data that is, you know, your C-suite level, that's their love language. Okay. Data, um, and helping them understand what could be, I think that's a really important part of it as well as like coming to the table with small wins and saying like, Hey, when a lead came in from an inbound marketing effort, 
they the, the sales cycle condensed by half or whatever that might be. And that's what we kept continuously finding was that when these leads were coming in from an inbound marketing approach, they were much warmer. They they were ready to they were ready to work with us a lot quicker than some of those outbound marketing efforts did. So you kind of have to use the language of what they're most interested in, and a lot of times that's data. A lot of that a lot of that time is MQLs, SQL kind of terminology, and just help them understand like this is an approach that's working and it's actually better. So as you think about that transition that you made, like what was like your you know, how did you know it worked? And then how did you also know, I think at the same time, like it wasn't, I assume it wasn't super smooth and you probably had some bumps in the road. So what was it like trying to get people? Cause I feel like what happens, right. Is you make a change like this, that everyone, especially when they've done it this way for a long time and they're all excited about it. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and then as soon as like, it's not perfectly smooth and there's a little bit of a bump, they're like, Oh, we got to go back to the old way. So how did you like prevent that from happening? Can you talk to me about what that transition process was really like? Yeah. Like I kind of spoke about before continuously pulling out those small wins early on, I was doing like weekly marketing meetings with the team. And for me, it goes back to, again, showing the data of like, look how many inbound leads came in, uh, look at where they're at within the pipeline. And those kind of updates were really helpful. Now, some of those weeks when inbound leads were really low or some of the things that I was putting into place maybe like weren't working as quickly or you know just wasn't in the groove quite yet, it is really easy to go back to normal. Um, it is easy to go back to old ways. But thankfully, our team is is really innovative in a sense of like, sometimes we know things aren't going to work and we're okay failing forward. I think that really helps to have a team where you feel psychologically safe to be like, you know, I'm bummed this isn't happening as quickly as I wanted it to, but like, trust me, this is the way we should go about it. Like we do not want to be left behind. And so just trust me and having a team that does trust you and gives you that space to like, maybe even mess up a little bit, that's okay. So I think having that culture of just like they trust you implicitly is very, very important when you're trying to put in all of these new tactics that you maybe otherwise weren't. And that's kind of how I approached it. No, I think that's really, really helpful. So thinking about you, you are a marketing team of how many? Of one. I already know the answer. <laughs> of, of one. So yeah. I like to call it like a marketing army of one, right? I've, I've been in that role before. Talk to me about what that is like, because you just talked about like fundamentally changing really your go-to-market. Yeah. But you're one person. How do you figure out what you're going to do when in reality, like, let's be honest, if marketing is doing its job, the success of the business solely depends on the work that you do. Yeah. And you're one person. Yeah. So tell me about like what that's what that's like for you. Cause I think a lot of people can relate to that and they don't realize that there's a lot more of us out there. <laughs> you know, I wish I still had it all figured out. Uh unfortunately I don't, but I think you get used to the feeling of the pressure that it is. I mean, you are the first point of, you know, new business and you know, sales. Sales obviously helps in that and marketing and sales need to work together. And I have a great sales guy who I get to work with, but there is a lot of pressure. And in that though, you have to get very strong in being, 
being just loud about what your priorities are and helping the team understand that because as a marketing person of one you can get dragged into a lot of things into a lot of mar into a lot of meetings into a lot of priorities that take you away from what your job is at the end of the day and so time management is huge for marketing people of one and being able to automate things. So making the machine work for you while you're away is very important. So trying to get a lot of those things, you know, just wrapped up. And so, you know, the automation is key. Time management is key. And then as well as, you know, I have had to advocate for, you know, doing some outsourcing now, like I, I have a SEO SEM specialist, you know, I have a social media ad specialist now and they're, they're like freelancers who work for us, but you have to really advocate for yourself because burnout is real and, um, you can't unburn the toast sometimes. So just making sure that you're vulnerable with the team and saying like, Hey, I can do anything, but I can't do everything. And so here's what it's going to take. Um, for me to continue doing my role well, but also maybe outsourcing some things that I don't necessarily have expertise in. So like I said, I don't have it all figured out. I would love to find someone who does. But uh, yeah, being a multitasker and very disciplined with time is big for me. Well, it's funny that you mentioned like someone who does, I think anyone who says they have it figured out is like just a bold faced liar because it's impossible <laughs> to figure it all out. Like marketing is hard. I don't, I don't know if everyone realizes that. I think sometimes people think, oh, you do marketing, like you cr create the pretty things. And I'm like, well, I mean, yes, but it's so much more than that. So, and I loved your approach, like finding, you know, outsourcing or finding other people that can help you that are experts in areas where maybe you're not, but how do you balance like, you know, you're one person, limited resources, you know, advocating for what's a freelancer versus a full-time hire. Like, how do you have that conversation? And how do you know, you know, when does it make sense to have someone just freelance or an agency help you versus actually bringing someone on full-time? Talk to me about that situation. Cause I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, that's important. And I figured out early on, I tracked a lot of my time, um, just saying like, Hey, here's how much time I'm spending here. Here's much, here's how much time I'm spending here. You know, this could take an expert, you know, two hours, which takes me 12 hours. And so understanding some of the time that I was spending on some of these tasks and then being able to say, okay, is this something an agency should do? Or is this something I, we can do with a freelancer? Um, also just because, you know, we're still a pretty small team and we don't have unlimited resources yet. Uh, we really have to know that like some of these agencies are just outside of our budget, but how can we pull someone maybe from an agency who wants to do some freelancer work? I've had a lot of success with that. Um, you know, don't, I don't have to pay the big bucks for the agency. Maybe someone at that agency likes to do some um, part-time work and freelance gigs on the side. So it really comes down to like, what are what what am I spending my time on based on kind of our company's goals? And then being able to say like, okay, I would really like to spend my time over here. I need someone to take this, but it doesn't make sense to bring on quite yet a full-time person. Granted, that's still in the plans, um, you know, soon. But until we kind of get to a point where we're like, wow, we're spending way more on outsourced help, then we might as well just bring someone on who we can pay a full-time salary and do some of these things we're, we're paying others to do outside of the company. So that's kind of how I've tracked it and how I'm kind of building that out and looking, looking to the future as well. 
I love that idea of tracking your own time. Cause I'm assuming that's not something you were asked to do. You just started doing it to, to your point earlier, like get the data to prove a point. Exactly. So you can have all of those logs. I mean, I had days and days of logs and I had worked in actually way back in college in a student run ad agency. And so I was a project manager for the ad agency. So I was very well versed in tracking time and understanding that. And again, I come, I'm just wired to be very disciplined. So I just felt like that was a good use of my time sometimes to track what I was doing. So if anything ever came up in the future, I could say, well, I'm spending, you know, half of my time on these types of tasks. And again, yeah, it just feeds back into that, those conversations about here's the data, here's my time. Is this a good use of my time? No, that's, I think a really great point. And I think sometimes people think about, you know, this idea of tracking time, almost like to your point agency world as like a negative when they don't realize like, Hey, tracking time when you have to do it kind of sucks, but when you're doing it for yourself and creating your own data story to advocate for what you want, it's a really smart idea. Um, I, I absolutely love that idea. Like, I think I might steal that and have some people <laughs> on my team start doing that. To your, to your point, like data, data beats opinions a yep. lot of times. It does. Because sometimes I think we think we're doing more than we actually are. And when you write it down, it's kind of humbling. Like, oh, I didn't work eight hours today. You know, like it's very humbling to look back at where you spent your time during the day and just being able to to look at that and say, okay, there's no excuses. Like this is, this is what it is. So yeah, try it out. Let me know. Let me know how it goes, Stephanie. So kind of like playing on that concept around like spending your time, obviously technology can be a big benefit when you're a small team, but how obviously you also have a limited budget. How do you think about figuring out like what is the right technology to invest in that will help you scale? Whereas also not investing in too many things and having, you know, 60% of your marketing budget eaten up by just technology, which is so easy to do these days with more than 8,000 MarTech solutions. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good question. And it, it is tough for, you know, small companies and especially small marketing teams who don't have a huge budget. When I first came on, I had a budget of $0. And when you're put in that position, you have to get very creative, uh, creating it sucks. <laughs> so everyone else knows if you've not, if you've not gotten a marketing job with a budget of $0, you have not lived. You need to do it at one point. And it sucks. And it is a, such a huge win when you get a budget. But let's talk more about that. That I could talk so long about this. I mean, it truly like I have I just have a soft spot, a soft spot in my heart for people like us, Stephanie, who who started from a zero budget because you have to get so creative and like think outside the box. Like you're almost doing guerrilla marketing like every day in your role. Like you're constantly having to think outside the box without spending money. I mean, think about how hard that would be to do today in just your own personal life. Like you don't even go a day without spending money on a coffee or this or that. Now try to get new leads in and bring in business with absolutely zero dollars. Now, granted, we were spending money on different technology. So we have HubSpot and we were using Salesforce as well. Um, we were able to kind of combine those two efforts and we just use HubSpot now. Uh, so we were able to use that technology. We we have been a customer of theirs forever. So we have a little bit of a discount, which thank gosh. So we, we use that, but 
in terms of really just maximizing like the zero dollars that we had, you know, we were kind of on the forefront of influencers. I mean, we called them, you know, relationships or word of mouth, but like you truly had to find some of these folks in your industry who had a large following and build connections with those folks and collaborate with those folks and do things. That's why when influencers came into this space, I'm like, I've been doing this forever. Like, why are we now finally like bringing this to the edge of marketing? Like some of us have had to be doing this forever who didn't have a budget. So you really have to think in terms of like, okay, how can we leverage an audience bigger than ours? Cause we don't have that audience and we want to get in front of other people. If we don't want to spend thousands of dollars on social media ads, you know, how else can we show up in front of people? How can we have events? I mean, yes, events do cost money, but how can we bring people to events or have them sign up for different webinars or uh, have them, you know, do meet and greets with our CEO and, and do something online, do a live video. You know, you have to get super creative in those ways. And I would never change it for the world to be put in that position because like you just said, when you do get a budget, like you're so much more frugal with that budget and you, you're you so much more thankful. And like every year it increases, it's like the more cool stuff you can do. And every time I know I have a budget, I still I still go back to old ways and say like, well, how could I do this for less? Like, how could I do this? that's a little cheaper, a little, or, or for free. Like there's ways that we can still kind of go back to those things that still really worked and we didn't have to spend lots and lots of money. So it's been an evolution from there, but you know, I, like I said, wouldn't change it. You know what? You're so right. Cause I, in the same way, even when I've had like multi-million dollar budgets that I've managed, I can't, I can't break the scrappiness in me. They're like, <laughs> well, we can do this for cheaper or let's do this a hacky way because part of it is, you know, I think marketing budgets a lot of times, and this is maybe where other people outside of marketing get a negative perception of what we do is you can spend a lot of money on things that don't work. Yeah. It's very possible. And I think when you have that mentality of like, I didn't have a budget or I was a marketing team of one with very limited resources, you learn how to do more with like less or nothing and you make it work. And then that is kind of like almost like a cultural philosophy inside of you <laughs> that goes everywhere you go. I mean, I, even now, like when we spin up my current role, like I'm working with some people on my team around our ad, paid ad strategy. And I'm like, we're going to start with like, $200, $500, like limited budget, because we need to prove out that this works before we put a lot of money behind it. And I think there's a lot of marketers that grow, that grow up in the school of thought of like, Oh, I'll put $10,000 behind it, you know, because I have the budget to do so and they don't figure it out, but it's, it's not a, it's not a big deal, but they don't realize like, Hey, when you have to do more with less, you learn how to get good at marketing real fast and how to be really efficient with your spend. And if we're being really honest, that's what moves your career faster is when you can do more with less yep. and drive better results. And I don't think people realize that. Oh no. I think, I think it's very easy for people to throw money at things. Um, you know, have an idea and say, okay, now figure out how much that's going to cost to do that. And and I do it the complete opposite way. Like I almost do it a backwards approach. Like, okay, what can we do first that doesn't cost a lot of money? And quite honestly, that's kind of the more organic, like fun, authentic types of marketing where it doesn't feel super forced and it doesn't feel kind of cold. It feels like, wow, this is like a very warm, like 
you, they can relate sometimes to those marketing tactics that we've created that are completely free. So complete, I, I totally agree with, with your sentiments. And yeah, I, I just am never going to be in that camp of have an idea and let's throw money at it. It's going to be, okay, let's, let's take this in a very tactical approach. And what can we do that doesn't cost a lot? And then how can we be as efficient as possible with the money that we are spending? And then making sure that we're pivoting quickly after we're spending that money and seeing what the trends are. Something that, you know, especially now that we do have a, a larger budget, something I'm really, I really push is like buying trends and doing it quickly, you know, spending some of that money up front quickly and finding out what's wor what works, you know, in a very small amount of time so that you're not wasting money all across the board. So if you know that YouTube link, YouTube ad, uh, YouTube ads really work well for you, you know, just keep pouring fuel on the fire there and stop doing some of those other things that you're not getting a huge ROI on. So that's a big thing too. When you are then going to spend the money, you need to be efficient and pivot quickly when you're seeing things that aren't necessarily working. And again, that's kind of the that's kind of nice when you're a small team because you're watching those numbers a lot more closely and you're able to pivot and tweak things as you go without letting things draw out a little too long. And then you're like, oh, dang, I haven't looked at that. That's not working. Let's pull the plug there. So that definitely helps too. When you have a smaller team, you can pivot quicker when you're running some of those paid marketing campaigns. So I got to ask you then, what's your favorite like marketing hack? What's like the one thing that you feel like is like your secret sauce that you've been able to do with like little to no money? <laughs> well, you know, we had a TEDx talk that my CEO did probably four, five years ago. Leveraging the TED brand was a really big, uh, was a really big deal for us. And so if you can leverage something like a TED talk or, um, you know, even just leverage your name with another company or brand that people know about, that is, uh, that is like the biggest trick in the toolbox because, a lot of times it's free. You know, it didn't cost us anything to do a TED Talk um, or build a relationship with someone in your network who has a huge following. And that has paid out dividends for us. So let's talk more about that. How, you know, you've marketed a book, you've marketed a TED Talk. And I think a lot of times that's a marketer's dream, right? Like, how do I get, so, how do I get a TED Talk for someone in my company? How, you know, what if we write a book? What was that experience like and what have you learned from it? So the TED talk came before the book and that was a really good thing because I learned a lot from some of the marketing efforts we did for the TED talk. Um, you know, you have to have, you have to have a good talk and you have to have a good outline to even be asked to give one. We were actually denied in our own city to do the TEDx talk. And so we applied somewhere else and got in there and too bad for them because the talk is about to a 4 million views at this point. So um, yeah, we ended up going somewhere else, but it was, it was a really cool experience for us because we were able to come together as a team, create the content for the talk, bring a lot of people along for the ride. That was something I really like really focused in on is making sure other people felt like they were a part of the process. So we shared a lot of like what the CEO, our, our CEO was going through in creating the TEDx talk. And then, uh, you know, when it came out, those people felt like, 
they felt like so excited about it, like they wanted to share. And so being able to have that experience as well as like, I had very strict like uh, data points I needed to hit to make sure that the talk had kind of a spider web effect of kind of being shared outward. I think if I remember correctly, it was like 10,000 views we needed to hit in like 24 hours to ensure that it had like exponential growth after that. And I am lucky to say that in like five or six hours time, we got 10,000 views. So that was kind of the power of our already built in network of people who, you know, we worked with as a company uh, or, you know, past clients, just evangelists even friends and family, like people know what a TED talk is. Like we didn't have to explain what it was to people. Like they, they automatically knew what it was. And so that was really cool. I will say we, we kind of messed up in the sense of a lot of people just like swarmed to our website and we didn't necessarily have a ton for them to do. We didn't build out our resources like we do now for the content that we talk about in the, in the TEDx talk. The TED talk is called, um, why comfort will ruin your life. And we talk about we the growth rings. Now we have tons of content with that, but we didn't necessarily have anything for them to do when they came to our website. Like we had a surge of people come and then they obviously bounced because they're like, okay, well now I don't know what to do. There's nothing for me to do here. So that really helped inform me when the book came out, our CEO and president wrote that together that I needed to put something in the book that helped people like not only bring them to our website, but also give them something in return, give them something of value. So in the book, I had, I have a link at the end of each chapter that we talk about different coaching activities and they can download templates for those activities. So it's been kind of cool because now we not only know who bought the book, um, but now we have their information so we can share more resources with those folks afterward. And we found a lot of great success in folks who download the templates of our book. They end up being customers very quickly. Um, It shrinks our sales cycle uh, almost in half. So that's been something that really informed me from what I learned in the TEDx talk to then how to make sure that I didn't make that same mistake with the book. I love that idea that you basically said, like, I got rejected for our city and I (laughs) said, screw it, let's go somewhere else. Like, I don't think enough marketers realize that just because someone says no to you doesn't mean that everyone else is going to say no, or even this in your situation, like TEDx in general. So how do you think about like turning kind of those failures into motivations to try something different? Like, why did you guys do that? Knowing it could fail again? Yeah, we have a very resilient team. And we have a team that's very much like, if you don't like us here, we'll try it here. Um, And we very much are let's, let's just keep going. We know this is the right thing to do. We know we have something to share. So let's not stop here. We've always been that way. Even with the book, like, I think we reached out to like two different publishers and one of them took, took us up on it. And like, usually you don't hear that. Like, usually you don't hear sometimes like a yes quite quickly, you know, on the the first or second try, but 
we've even in other aspects of what we do in our business, it has always been this mindset of like, if you tell me no, I'm just going to go try it somewhere else. And if we know we have, we have a lot of value to share. We know we have good information. A lot of our information is based on research. And so if you're going to say no to us, like we're, we know someone's going to tell us yes down the line. So we've always tried to use that framework. It comes again back to culture. It comes back to sometimes your CEO driving that force of like, okay, well then if they said no, we're going here. And that has really trickled down to kind of our team's mindset of like, if we get a no, maybe it's for the right reason and let's move on to something else or let's try it again elsewhere. So last question for you, what do you think is the biggest marketing challenge that people face today? I think in terms of what we do in marketing, we spoke about it a little bit before, but it's just always changing. You know, you sign up for marketing and you have to be adaptable forever. Like you have to be cool. You got to be hip. You got to be up with the times. You got to know current events. You got, you just have to know a lot of different things and you have to wear a lot of different hats. So the fact that you're wearing a lot of different hats. I call myself a generalist. Like I'm, I'm pretty good at a lot of things. I'm not necessarily specifically an expert at one thing, but being able to keep up with that stuff can be pretty tough. Uh, and just know, I, I had a consultant one time tell me this, like try not to boil the ocean. Like if you're able to do a few things very well, you're winning. Like you are doing a good job. So just continually know like you're, you're in the boat with a lot of other marketers who feel overwhelmed all of the time and just know that like you can do anything. You just can't do everything at the same time. That's definitely a challenge I've been facing and, and still working on today. One of my favorite hacks that Anna shared, I think everyone can learn from, and it's how to get more budget. And no, she didn't come up with this really brilliant way of getting more budget that involves a bunch of spreadsheets and calculations and projections and benchmarks. Nope. She started tracking her time. She started tracking how much time she was spending on things that she wasn't an expert in. And then she added up all that time and said, look how much time I'm spending. We could outsource it for probably cheaper than what it's costing me to do with this. And that's how she got more budget. It's brilliant. It's a way that I think all of us could, without a ton of work, be able to actually prove that it's more cost effective from a time and resource perspective to outsource to an expert in a specific area than to have ourselves do it. And I think that's something we can all take away and something super easy for us to do. So the next time you need more budget, don't go looking for a benchmark report. Don't go asking your friends how to get more budget. Try actually writing down how much time you or someone on your team spends doing the actual work. And then how much it would cost to outsource it to someone that's more experienced at it who could do it faster and see what happens. You've been listening to Real Marketers. If you love what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And don't forget to tell a friend. All of this marketing goodness shouldn't be kept a secret. <laughs>